Hi, ladies. So glad you are joining us today for Women in the Word from wherever you're watching. We're glad you're here. I'm Shelley Davis, and I'm glad to be here, too. I love studying the Word of God with each of you at Women in the Word. You know, one of the hot topics for everyone during the COVID uh, pandemic uh, has been Um, What are you streaming on TV? Uh, Even in the grocery store checkout line, social distance, I've traded the names of series to watch and movies to watch. Um, So I have a hot tip for you today. If you haven't watched it already, watch a great movie called I Still Believe. It's the true story of Christian singer Jeremy Camp and his wife who was diagnosed with cancer before they were married. Um, Jeremy wrote the worship song, I Still Believe, during the hardest times of his life. And during that hard time, he was able to write these words. I still believe in your faithfulness. I still believe in your truth. I still believe in your holy words. Even when I don't see, I still believe. It is a great movie. I hope you have a chance to enjoy it. It has a great message. We have a great message today also as we look at these two chapters in the book of John that give us a great look at some people who also have an opportunity to believe in Jesus. Some of them are going to say only seeing is believing, but with Jesus it is believing that truly leads to seeing. So open your Bibles with me and let's read together beginning in John chapter 2. At verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, this is near the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. And as a Jewish man, he was required to attend the Passover at the temple in Jerusalem. And when he arrives at the temple, what he finds is a stark reminder of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Now, because worshipers had often traveled many miles to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, they were unable to bring the animals required for the sacrifices. So a marketplace, which was originally meant to facilitate worship, had been set up during the uh, Passover in the outer courtyard, the court of the Gentiles. But it had now progressed long past being a um, facilitator, a support for true worship, and had become um, really a big business for the temple priests and the Jewish officials. The marketplace had overtaken what was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship for the Gentiles. It was actually the only place Gentiles were allowed to pray and worship in the temple. And Jesus' actions here and his words as he walks into the temple reveal his broken heart at what he sees. Worship of God the Father had truly been replaced by the worship of money and of profit. So with a whip, Jesus removes them all. He turns over the tables. He pours out the money. He chases out the sheep and the goats and even the vendors. God the Son walks into the house 
of his father, of God the Father. And he sees the appalling lack of respect, lack of reverence that should be happening during the highest of holy days of Passover. Unfortunately, we know that no one really heeded Jesus' words here because in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Jesus having to cleanse the temple a second time, this time at the end of his ministry, right before he is arrested. The only people who Jesus makes a lasting impression on are his disciples because we read here in these first few verses uh, that we looked at that his disciples will later remember his deep love for the Father's house, his deep love for worship and prayer, and recognize that the scriptures had already foretold his zeal and his passion for his Father's house. Look at verse 18 with me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You know, the Jewish leaders are totally taken by surprise here by Jesus' actions as he cleans house at the temple. And what they first do is demand a sign. They want some sort of miraculous sign from him. Now, Jesus surprised them with uh, his actions, but you know what's interesting is they never really question what he does. They don't call turning over the tables and sending everyone out unlawful. They don't bring in the Roman soldiers um, and have him arrested. I think they don't call it unlawful because they already know that it's wrong. They already know that this marketplace does not belong in a house of worship. But what they do question is they question Jesus' authority to come in and restore worship in the temple. It's like they're saying to him, who are you to do um, in our house what you did? His answer to them gives us the same thing that we see of Jesus throughout his ministry. He gives them words that puzzle them, a lot like the parables that you see in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus wants them to ponder and mull over his true meaning, to find understanding in what he's really telling them. But just like with the parables, because of their darkened spiritual condition, they are blinded to the truth he is telling them. And their minds go not to the spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to teach them, but their minds simply go to the physical, the bricks and the martyr that they see around them instead of seeing Jesus, God in the flesh, standing before them. What they also miss is that in his answer, he is giving them a sign. He is telling them a prediction of his future resurrection as the Messiah. And that prediction should answer their question of his authority. Because as the risen Savior, he will have authority over all things. Let's read a little bit more. Look at verse 23 with me. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust themselves to him, to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. 
So while he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus apparently healed people and cast out demons, even though John doesn't record it here in his gospel. But John does make a significant point here in these couple of verses about the origin and nature of true belief. Many people had seen Jesus heal and even cast out demons, and what they believed in was the miracle. They believed that a miracle had happened by his hand. To them, it proved he was a prophet who had the power of God to heal or to cast out demons. But believing in sensational miracles is not the same as authentic belief in Jesus as the Savior by faith alone. It is possible that seeing these miraculous healings would one day lead some of these people to a true belief in Jesus as the Savior through faith alone. But at this point, it hasn't happened yet. You know, a temporary excitement from seeing something sensational does not equal the committed belief in the person of Jesus Christ. A saving, authentic belief comes not from seeing miracles, that sensational thing that um, draws us to the miraculous, but from the simple faith, but by simply believing by faith alone, the truth that we do know about Jesus. Look at what the author of Hebrews has to say about faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your undoing. It's a gift of God and not a result of works so that no one can boast. You know, true belief in Jesus comes through faith alone, by grace alone, in the person of Jesus alone. And, you know, John is quick to point out here that our Lord Jesus always knows the nature and origin of our belief. He knows what we are really putting our faith in. He knows the hearts and the minds of men, and he's not fooled by those whose belief is focused only on the sensational things that they need, that they need to keep seeing over and over again. You know, perhaps it would lead the, them to look deeper, as we're going to see in just a few minutes with Nicodemus, but John actually records that many of Jesus' followers will fall away later in his ministry. Um, the sensational has not brought them to true faith in our Lord Jesus. Look at John 6, 6, 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The word disciples here, uh, as we see throughout the book of John, oftentimes simply means the followers of teachers. It's not talking about the 12 apostles that we call disciples as well. And many of these people who had followed Jesus because of sensational miracles eventually leave his ministry. Now, Jesus' first Passover, after beginning his public ministry, actually gives us a pretty insightful look into the people that he encountered during that Passover. 
We looked at the Jewish leaders who questioned him. We see the temple priests who are profiting off that marketplace and the Passover pilgrim who um, believed in his miracles. All of these people are people who have God's own promises um, of the Messiah that is to come. But instead of having faith in those promises that they have heard over and over again through the prophets for centuries, they had become a people that wanted signs, that wanted the miraculous, that wanted that sensational before they believed in these promises of God. Because of their spiritual blindness, they had missed the greatest miracle of all when Jesus himself walked into the temple that Passover. Our lesson today from those who needed to see in order to believe is that as believers, we have to guard ourselves as well. We have to guard ourselves from needing sensational experiences to bolster our faith. I watched the original Star Wars movie from 1977 recently with some of my grands. And I remember uh, when Star Wars originally came out in 1977 and everybody thought it was phenomenal. The special effects were amazing. They just couldn't quit talking about the action sequences. But we're, we're, we're used to so much more today that now when you watch a movie from 1977, it looks a little silly and kind of fake, like they have toy spaceships moving through or whatever. We want more from our movies today, don't we? We expect more from our movies today. We can't be that way with our faith. We can't be that way with our faith, always looking for more sensational experiences in order to know Jesus. You know, all we really need to do is to look for Jesus right here in his word. We'll find him there every single day and every single time we sit down with the scriptures, your belief and mine will grow deep and strong as we encounter Jesus in his word every single day. Now, next, we are going to look at an expert teacher of God's Word who unfortunately needs more teaching in order to believe. Um, look at chapter 3 with me, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is the ultimate Jew. He's a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and he's also probably Israel's best known teacher of the law at the time. He's apparently himself witnessed or at least heard about the miracles that Jesus was doing during the Passover crowds. And he's come to Jesus himself to find out more. He's doing what we actually talked about. He's pursuing Jesus. He visits Jesus at night, and of course, there's some practical reasons for that. It would give them an uninterrupted time of conversation, one-on-one, -on -one, and he could keep his interest in Jesus hidden from the other Pharisees. 
But you know, throughout John's gospel, he uses darkness to represent spiritual darkness. So he may have included this detail about Nicodemus coming at night as a statement of Nicodemus's spiritual condition. Nicodemus here greets Jesus with some flattering terms. He calls him rabbi and a teacher who has come from God uh, because Nicodemus actually shares the exact same thought as everyone else. Jesus is a prophet who has been given the power to heal people. What I love here is that Jesus is completely immune to Nicodemus's flattery. And what he does is he goes straight to the heart of what he knows Nicodemus needs most. Nicodemus most needs spiritual transformation. So Jesus tells him without pausing straight up that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they experience complete spiritual transformation that will lead to eternal life. Jesus uses the phrase that we're familiar with in the church. He uses that phrase, born again, to depict the spiritual rebirth that takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of God. Now, the word that's translated again here and the phrase born again in our text can also mean from above. So this could read born from above. So this spiritual transformation or this second birth that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus right here would be from above. It would be from God's spirit. His revelation to Nicodemus is that spiritual transformation comes from God's spirit and results in new life as part of God's kingdom. Now, Nicodemus has actually a couple of problems with this. He's confused and still blinded. He can't really grasp this thought of a second birth or being born again. The first problem he has is that all Jews, unless they're guilty of apostasy, already thought they were part of the kingdom of God. They're God's chosen people, God's covenant people. And the second problem he has is similar to the temple officials who immediately put aside the spiritual and went to the physical bricks and mortar, Nicodemus does the same thing. He puts aside the spiritual and goes to the physical. He thinks Jesus is talking about physical birth, and he misses Jesus' reference here to being born from above. So Jesus doesn't stop his um, explanation to Nicodemus. In fact, he simplifies it a little bit. He says, flesh is born of flesh, Nicodemus, but our spirits are regenerated by God's spirit. Now, there is some controversy here about Jesus's meaning in verse 5 when he says, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There are at least five interpretations, probably more, but five I looked at closely of what Jesus means by being born of water here. Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that you must be baptized in order to experience salvation and enter God's kingdom. The New Testament is very, very clear that salvation, spiritual transformation, is by faith alone, through grace alone. We just read that great verse in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, baptism is our outward witness to the world that we have already been regenerated by our faith alone in Jesus alone. So 
the possibilities for water here, let me just share a couple of them with you. The possibilities for the meaning of water is it could be a reference to our physical birth. It could be that reference to our physical birth. It could also be a symbol for the Holy Spirit because other places in John's gospel, he uses water as a reference for the Holy Spirit. Or it could be a reference to repentance from sin because John was doing, John the Baptist was doing water baptism to call the nation of Israel to repent and be baptized. But Jesus' point to Nicodemus here is clear. In order to enter the kingdom of God, he must experience spiritual transformation through divine intervention from God's spirit. Now, Jesus compares this invisible mystery of the Holy Spirit in spiritual transformation to the blowing of the wind. Because just like the wind, we can't see it. We can't see God's spirit when it comes to intervene in our lives. We also can't control it. We can't order it to intervene in anyone's life. But we see its effect around us, don't we? Just like the wind. Just like the wind. Last summer, Billy and I rode out Hurricane Hannah in a house on Padre Island. It was a pretty unique and a little bit scary situation. And seeing the incredible power of the wind tossing around trees and furniture and decks and roofs and even whole houses was a dramatic example of the great power you could only see the effect of. God's Spirit has that infinite, invisible power as well to transform lives. Let's read a little bit more about Nicodemus and Jesus as they continue their conversation. Look at verse 9 with me. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly I say, truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel spoke of the coming of the Messiah and the work of God's Spirit throughout the world. As Israel's most learned teacher, Nicodemus, ought to remember and know and understand. Understand the words of the prophets as Israel's premier teacher. He should, of all of Israel, should understand how God's Spirit can work to bring about spiritual transformation. Look at the prophet Ezekiel's words, which Nicodemus should have been very familiar with. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know, Nicodemus' lack of understanding of these scriptures and many other scriptures throughout the Old Testament, even as he stands as before Jesus, is an example of Israel's blindness to God's prophetic truth as well. They are all missing what God had been preparing them for centuries through the prophets. Jesus, 
He continues to, I think, have a heart for Nicodemus. And so he doesn't stop here. He gets to the nitty-gritty with Nicodemus because he says to him, if you are going to understand deep spiritual truths, it has to start with spiritual transformation that takes place when we are born again. If Nicodemus could not grasp spiritual transformation, uh, being born again, when Jesus himself, who's come from heaven to earth to personally explain it to him, he was never going to understand the rest of God's miracles and mysteries as well. Heaven's truth were going to be forever taken away from him. Jesus was an eyewitness to heaven's mysteries, but Nicodemus was still blinded and confused even when God's own eyewitness is explaining it to him. So Jesus gives it one more try. He gives his Old Testament scholar one more chance to truly grasp spiritual transformation and who Jesus himself is by using the story of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness in Numbers 21. I hope you were here a couple of years ago when we studied Numbers together. Look at verse 14 with me. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You know, when the people of Israel were dying from poisonous snakes that had invaded their camp as a penalty for their disobedience, God provided healing for them if they looked upon a bronze serpent that Moses, according to God's direction, had put on top of his staff and placed in the center of the camp. Looking at that serpent on Moses' staff provided salvation from physical death by faith alone. By faith alone. And as Jesus compares himself to that serpent on Moses' staff, Jesus was giving Nicodemus the, a picture of the truth that salvation for all men would come to the world to, by faith, uh, through him by faith as well. Whoever believed in Jesus, lifted up on the cross as their sin substitute, would receive eternal life. And just as the nation of Israel simply had to gaze on that serpent lifted up, all humanity simply had to gaze on the sacrifice Jesus is making on the cross. A look done in faith at Jesus on the cross would result in salvation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a famous preacher in the 1800s, and he had his spiritual transformation, his faith moment of looking at Jesus on January 6th of 1850. He was a young man who, even though his father and grandfather were preachers, he was discouraged and disappointment, disappointed because he didn't get it. He really didn't get that spiritual transformation came by faith in Jesus alone. And one night he wandered into a, um, a church service where there was a very unprepared substitute teacher who was preaching a pretty simple but bored message. And all that preacher did that night was look down from the pulpit at Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He had nothing more to say to him except, young man, look to Jesus. 
Look to Jesus. And in that moment, that's exactly what Charles Spurgeon did. He experienced the spiritual transformation that comes by placing your faith alone in Jesus Christ and became one of the most insightful preachers of all times. Jesus' message to Nicodemus is same as that preacher said to Charles Spurgeon, look to Jesus. When he is lifted up on the cross, look to him and be saved. Now the next verse, John 3.16, is I think the best known verse in the whole Bible. It's probably known throughout the world. So look at John 3.16 with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus truly has a heart for Nicodemus. He really wants this great teacher of Israel to step out of the spiritual darkness that he's in and into the light. And he lays out God's plan of salvation here in John 3.16 in the best way possible. He lays it out clearly, concisely. And I think this verse is so profound and everything else that we read here in this passage is because it's Simple. It's a simple truth. And this simple truth starts with the fact that God has a heart for the world. He has a heart for the world and that salvation is a manifestation of his heart of love for the world. And salvation from judgment, condemnation, and eternal separation from God because of sin, our sin, comes only one way. There's only one way to escape that condemnation, and that is through belief in Jesus, God's only Son. And God has one motive in sending Jesus, his beloved Son, in love. In love, his motive is to save the world through the suffering, death, and resurrection of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Condemnation comes only to those who refuse to believe in Jesus. It's a choice. It's a simple choice. Either we rest in our condemnation because of our sin, or we believe in Jesus who died for our sin. Look at Romans 3.23 on your verse sheet. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you know, everyone who does not respond to that free gift, and who doesn't love a free gift, and this is the ultimate free gift, Everyone who does not respond to that free gift 
They don't respond because they don't want their sin exposed by the light of the gospel. And Jesus tells us here that many will run. They will run from the light, even if it's shined out towards them, back into the darkness of sin and evil. And many will not just avoid the light of God's love and truth. They're going to hate it. They are going to hate it. We see that often in our world today. People that hate the gospel and the light and the truth that it brings into the world. You know, there were those in the wilderness with Moses bitten by poisonous snakes that just refused to believe that the bronze serpent on the staff could heal them. They refused to go and look on the serpent in faith. And they died a painful, unnecessary death from that snake bite. The same is true for those who refuse God's free gift of salvation and eternal life. They are going to experience their willful rejection of truth and light and love and salvation for all eternity. You know, Nicodemus has really gotten more than he bargained for here with Jesus, but the words he hears do apparently change his life forever eventually, Later in John, Nicodemus defends Jesus um, against the other Pharisees who, offer, who want to arrest Jesus. And it is Nicodemus who assists Joseph of Arimathea with the burial of Jesus' body. Look at John 19 on your verse sheet. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You know, Nicodemus did see Jesus lifted up on that cross that day. And I can only imagine that as he saw Jesus lifted up on that cross, that he heard the words of the conversation that he and Jesus had. He heard the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus' life was changed forever. Our lesson from Nicodemus after this remarkable conversation is that unbelief and lack of understanding of the scriptures go hand in hand. When Nicodemus was in his unbelief, it was because he did not understand the scriptures that he supposedly knew. He went to Jesus as a revered teacher of the law who knew the scriptures up here but he didn't know them or understand them down here. So instead of exchanging knowledge, rabbi to rabbi, he was given deep spiritual truth that he had been blinded to. When we go to Jesus in his word right here with open hearts and open minds seeking the truth, we're going to learn deep spiritual truth and life-changing revelations for ourselves as well. As believers, we must always continue to seek Jesus in his word. We're never going to know it all, ladies. There's always more understanding to be found from our Lord Jesus. Look at John 8, 32 on your verse sheet. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free.
Okay, we're going to finish up by looking um, at one more person. We're going to look at John the Baptist and the incredible character and ministry that John the Baptist has, who by God's Spirit has believed in Jesus since before he was born. And John the Baptist sees the divinity of Jesus who is above all. Look at verse 25 with me. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, and he's, they're speaking of Jesus here, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. There's jealousy breaking out among the followers of John the Baptist as they observe Jesus and his followers uh, also doing ministry across the Jordan River from them in the Judean countryside. John is baptizing, continuing his ministry as he's had, and Jesus is overseeing as his disciples baptize nearby. What we see here is the greatness of John the Baptist in his reply. Because what we see is that John the Baptist knows who he is. He knows he's a witness. He knows he's a friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom. He knows he's a voice to the truth that he has been given by God to share. He knows his ministry is a God-given privilege, not a competition, something that everyone in ministry needs to remember. And he states unequivocally one more time for everyone to hear again that he is not the Christ. And he finishes here with this great statement of humility. Um, he must increase and I must decrease. John is a believer in Jesus who sees what God has sent him to do. And it makes him happy. It makes him happy to do the job he has been given what an amazing testimony to his ministry and to his heart for our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we have just a couple more verses. Read in verse 31 with me. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we just saw the incredible human character of John the Baptist. And right here we see amazing divine attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ. Human teachers we see here are limited by their humanity. But Jesus, God's only son who's come from heaven to earth, surpasses every human teacher, surpasses every prophet, every preacher, every theologian, 
every social media influencer. Only Jesus the Word has God's spirit without measure or limitation. There is absolutely nothing in Jesus that limits God's spirit. He is the perfect truth of God, and he gives the perfect truth of God whenever he speaks. And John closes this chapter here, this incredible chapter three, by presenting two opposing choices. All mankind in John's world and in ours really has only two choices that matter in life. We can all boil down our lives to only two choices, actually. Believe in Jesus and have the gift of eternal life or reject Jesus and suffer the consequences of unbelief, which is God's wrath for eternity. Two choices in life. Two choices. You know, John the Baptist here is the perfect example for us today of someone who first believes and then he sees. He sees. He's one of the only believers in Jesus at this point in Jesus' early ministry, and he understands who Jesus is. His belief in Jesus allowed him to see all things in life so much more clearly. He sees who he was in the life of uh, in light of who Jesus was. He clearly sees what his mission and ministry is in life. He sees that being a witness to Jesus brings him the most joy he could ever experience in this world and he sees that giving Jesus the spotlight means stepping back out of the spotlight himself. But being a believer in Jesus should bring clarity in our lives as well, great clarity. Our lesson from John today is um, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in the clarity and purpose that being a believer brings into our lives. Being a believer, just like John, it lets us see everything in our world and in our life more clearly Just like John, it gives us a mission and a purpose. It gives us the mission and the purpose to share the gospel with others so that they clearly know the only two choices that are important to make in this world. And when we share that gospel, it's going to bring us joy as we watch others have life change. And finally, it's going to bring us to our knees in humility when we see Jesus as we truly see that he must increase and we must decrease. Whoever believes, whoever believes will see and experience God's great love for all of us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. And Father, that's the prayer I have for each one of us today, that as believers we will clearly see we will clearly see um, what you have for us in life. Our mission, our ministry, our purpose, our opportunity to share the life change that comes into others' lives when we share with them the truth about our Lord Jesus, and it will give us joy. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that our Lord Jesus has your spirit without measure or limitation, and everything that we know about him in your word here is true. Put your um, favor and blessings on our life as believers. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.